Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. All right, now I'm going to talk briefly about the sponsors that make this podcast possible. And keep in mind that all the money from these sponsors goes towards hiring outdoor journalism interns. This year, we've hired three interns and paid them $15 per hour. And over the course of this podcast, we've hired seven different interns, not only helping us report on Oregon's outdoors, but also teaching young college students journalistic skills that they can carry forward. Plus, it's a pretty fun internship anyway. They get to travel outdoors, report about the environment. It's a good gig, and these sponsors make it possible. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that before we get rolling. So this part, you'll recognize this podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast, which reminds you that winter safety is paramount, especially during the king tides and heavy rains that characterize this season. King tides result from the gravitational pull of the moon and sun and can cause exceptionally high tides that may flood coastal areas at specific times. To stay safe, it's critical for residents and visitors to be aware of high and low tides and coastal flood warnings. Stay informed, heed warnings, and be prepared for rapidly changing conditions to ensure winter safety on the Oregon coast. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department invites Oregonians to explore parks this fall and winter to experience the beauty of these seasons. If you're camping, Remember to get firewood from sources local to your destination to avoid bringing invasive insects, such as the devastating emerald ash borer, into parks. This will help preserve the health of Oregon's forests for seasons to come. Learn more about protecting Oregon's ash trees at stateparks.oregon.gov. All right, in today's episode, we are going to round up the biggest outdoors and environment news stories of the year. But first, Here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, well, welcome to one of our last podcasts of the year 2023, where we are going to look back at 10 of the biggest news stories of the year in Oregon's outdoors. It was a fascinating year here in the Beaver State, And I'm going to bring us back through some of the biggest stories touching on the environment, recreation, wildlife, and public lands, just to name a few of the topics. Naturally, this is just my list and anybody might have their own, but these were the stories, the trends, and the changes that stuck out to me the most as someone who reports about all facets of our state's outdoors. Before we get rolling on this one, I just want to say a very quick thank you to everyone who listens, subscribes, or both. We've continued to grow this podcast kind of against the odds, and it's meant a lot that everyone has kept listening over the years. 
I'm really excited about some of the stuff we're going to bring in next year. My goal is to expand this podcast, make it a little bit more interactive and fun. So stay tuned for some ideas and announcements about that. But for now, let's jump into the biggest news stories in Oregon's outdoors from this past year. All right, well, I wanted to start off on kind of a positive note, and admittedly, that can sometimes be hard to find when it comes to Oregon's wildlife. But I did come up with a few that jump out. So for number 10 on our list, and yes, I'm going to kind of count down these news stories from 10 to 1 in order of sort of importance. But in, on number 10 on our list, we've got the resurgence of two species. And it's interesting because in this case, we can kind of see how decisions we make can help out wildlife while in the other, it's kind of a happy mystery. So the first one I wanted to mention is the snowy plover, that adorable little shorebird that nests on Oregon coast beaches. Now back in 1993, their numbers dropped to as low as 55, and there was a really decent chance that they were going to go extinct. But over the course of a few decades, the state has really focused on blocking off some of their habitat from humans and dogs, which allows them to breed. And it's actually worked. Their numbers have reached right around 500 animals over the past few years. And just as important, they're starting to expand their range. So not only did they go from 55 to over 500, but now they can be found in every coastal county in Oregon in what biologists have called a pretty remarkable turnaround. So in that case, we took this action, you know, blocking off their habitats. Like there's a decent amount of of beaches, especially on the south coast, where you go out and you'll see habitat plover blocked off. So we took that action and it led to this desired outcome. But in the next case, biologists aren't really sure what's going on, and that is coho salmon. And their numbers have been doing pretty darn well, especially compared to their counterparts, the Chinook salmon. Now, I wrote about this most recently with the kind of shockingly high returns of coho in the upper Willamette Basin, but coho have been doing pretty well just about everywhere, including on the coast. They're often one of the few wild species that you are allowed to catch and harvest. The funny thing is that nobody's 100% sure why coho are doing better than Chinook. We think maybe they're finding better places to feed in the ocean, and they seem to be doing a better job of, of using lower, slower backwater spawning habitats. But nobody really knows the answer as to why coho are doing so much better than Chinook. But as one fish biologist told me, anybody that tells you that they understand why coho are doing so well, they're probably lying. Okay, so for number nine, we're going with a more somber topic. And that was the loss of two local outdoor shops and in general, the struggle of local outdoor gear shops to survive in Oregon. So the two mainstays that closed this year were Salem Summit Company in the capital city, and then Andy and Bax up in Portland, a place that was a very cool army surplus store, but more importantly, just a great place to buy whitewater rafting gear. One of the only places you could get quality rafting gear in the state, in fact. So at Salem Summit Company, the owner, Al Tandy, said that the decision to came close from supply chain issues, uh, from shoplifting problems, from high costs, and from staffing shortages. The owners of Andy and Bax never really said why they were shutting down. But what is clear, I think, 
and this is not universally true since there's still some great local outdoor shops going, but I think it's hard to be a local retailer in this climate where people are buying a lot of stuff online uh, and you don't have that national backing of a place like REI or Cabela's. Tandy kind of summed it up by saying that they got a lot of support from the community. You know, it wasn't necessarily a lack of community support that, that doomed them, but he just but he just said the small business headwinds just got too strong. This was just a reminder that if you want local gear shops to survive, you got to focus on going there. All right, so for number eight, we're moving back to a more fun subject, and that has been the continued expansion of Silver Falls State Park, which more and more is turning into something that more closely resembles a national park than a state park. Now, I say that because the park just opened up a new waterfall trail and trailhead. They're beginning to construct a new campground and visitor center on the north side of the park. They've empowered new lodging and restaurant in the backcountry of the park. There's new activities like rope tree climbing. There's new mountain biking trails in the backcountry. And when I wrote about it earlier this year, I called it a new era because after people have been crowding in there and visiting for a long time, you saw the numbers of visitors to Silver Falls kind of going up and up and up. You know, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department really took action and they are transforming Silver Falls to kind of meet that demand, which just isn't happening in a lot of other places in Oregon's outdoors. So the funding for all this new stuff, like the new campground, the new trail, the new visitor center that'll open in the next couple of years, that came from $50 million from the state legislature through general obligation bonds. And it's helping fuel a lot of other projects in Oregon's state park system. But Silver Falls is the biggest one. I mean, there's just the most big, striking things happening there. And again, it feels it's going to feel like a national park at some point. We're going to have two campgrounds, three restaurants, you know, multiple trails, you know, lots of people. It's just that's 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 kind of what it's turning into. Whether you like it or not, it's, you know, I thought that that was a big deal. Okay, number seven is an issue that comes up pretty much every year in Oregon now, and that is wildfires. The fact that it's just number seven on the list is actually pretty good news. And I put it here because this was a pretty wonky fire season. We had a full episode on it, but by most measures, it was a quiet fire season with the fewest acres burned since 2019 and way below the 10-year average. But the fires that did burn had a pretty big impact, especially in western Oregon. There were major evacuations for wildfires in Salem and numerous other more urban areas as human-caused grass fires in particular were really high this year. Fires also closed highways and popular recreation areas up the Mackenzie in the Central Cascades and the Fall Creek area. So I guess to sum it up, I mean, we didn't see a ton of acres blackened this year or burned but it was still a busy fire season. All right, so at number six, we've got a tale of two winters. Last winter, and then the one that we are just beginning here in Oregon. And it really illustrates kind of the impact of these two different types of weather patterns on our winters. So last year, last winter, was one of the best snow years in modern recorded history. 
In early April, Oregon's snowpack was 172% of normal, which was the best since 2008. It really extended ski season deep into spring, and I definitely took advantage of it. Got in a lot of ski days with my two daughters. Last year was the third straight La Nina winter in Oregon, and that tends to mean cooler winters and, and better skiing conditions, and that really seemed to happen. Even though Oregon has had some of the warmest years on record recently, especially during the summer, our winters have still worked out pretty well. We've had ski areas open, we've had snow in the Cascades, and it's been pretty decent. You couldn't complain about a whole lot since 2020. But if you listen to this podcast, we talked a lot about what was coming up this winter, and that was the return of El Nino, which tends to bring these warmer winters. And we've definitely seen that play out, as only Oregon's highest and most expensive ski areas have been open, like uh, Mount Bachelor, Timberline, and Mount Hood Meadows. The mid-elevation ski areas like Hoodoo, Willamette, Mount Ashland, you know, just, just places where your kids can ski for free, you know, they haven't been able to open at all, which is a serious bummer for families that rely on those cheaper prices to get in their ski trips. And there isn't much encouragement on the horizon. Most of the projections for the next few weeks and even through January show conditions being far warmer than normal. And it just makes it hard to get that rain to transition into snow at the past levels. It's exactly what happened in 2015. We got plenty of rain, but it was so warm it just didn't turn into snow. And any time it did turn into snow, we would get rain that would melt it. Unfortunately, that is kind of what we're expecting for the remainder of this winter. There, you know, it, there's a possibility that we could get a nice cold front. Some rain comes in, and we do get snow. And the you know some of these mid elevation skiers can open. That happened in like 2018-19. Um, it was a bad start to the ski year, and it got a lot better on the backside. This one, you know, we'll see. You know, we're trying to hold out hope. There's plenty of winter left, but at this moment, it doesn't look great and certainly not nearly as good as last year. All right, well, that's the first five of our biggest outdoor news stories of the past year. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, but when we return, we'll count down the, the five biggest stories of the year. So that's when we return. Tiffany Roddy with Roseburg Forest Products. As a professional forester, I was drawn to Oregon by the trees and the vastness of Oregon's majestic outdoors. I'm proud to work for a family-owned, fully integrated wood products company with a deep commitment to our industry and our communities. Roseburg's sustainably managed timberlands are open for recreation and provide natural wood products that help make people's lives better from the ground up. We are proud members of AFRC, sponsor of the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The Tillamook Coast welcomes you for local coastal adventures. And while we invite you to explore the natural beauty of Oregon's coast during the winter season, we also advise you to be aware of winter weather and plan for it. You may picture yourself hiking through lush forests, beachcombing along rocky shores, or discovering tide pools teeming with life. 
Yes, the Tillamook Coast offers a unique playground for outdoor enthusiasts and nature lovers alike. But nature's power is undeniable, especially during king tides and heavy rains. Stay safe by checking tide schedules and monitoring coastal flood warnings. Always keep an eye on weather forecasts and road conditions. Remember to pack essentials like water, flashlights, and warm clothing. If you plan to hike, avoid areas prone to landslides during or after heavy rainfall. Explore our region's winter wonders, but do so with safety in mind and a deep respect for the forces of nature. To learn more about winter weather on the Tillamook Coast, visit TillamookCoast.com and plan your unforgettable winter journey. All right, at number five, I just picked a category called timber or logging issues. Now, this issue hasn't risen to the level of the old forest wars and the spotted owl days of the 1990s and 80s, but this year did see some significant things happen over logging and timber in the state. It would take a full podcast to explain all of it, but I'm just going to hit on a few of the different stories that kind of came together to make this a pretty interesting year for logging and timber. So, Probably the biggest timber issue this past year is how much companies are going to be able to log Oregon state forests going forward. It's been a really contentious issue known as the Habitat Conservation Plan, which keeps the state in compliance with the Endangered Species Act. The Oregon Department of Forestry has been working on this for years, and as they've started to roll it out, the issue has been a concern that this new plan would limit the amount of timber harvested on those state forests. And again, we're not talking about federal forests. These are state forests, largely in the coast. There's some in the, in the Cascade foothills. It's not as vast as federal forests, but state forests. But it still funds the budget of a lot of rural communities or it supports local jobs. And so there's a lot of concern in rural communities that this is going to have a negative impact. There has been a number of protests. The issue has gotten so contentious that it's still being worked on by the board of by the Oregon's Board of Forestry, which had originally planned to wrap this up last fall. It got extended. It became an issue in the legislature. So that's one to keep an eye on as we head into the new year. Other issues, other issues involving timber include amendments to the Northwest Forest Plan, which it does involve federal forests, and then President Biden's order to prioritize conserving old growth forests as a way to store planet warming carbon dioxide. But all in all, there was just a lot of issues related to timber. I wouldn't call any of them front burner issues, but you know they, they are going to play a big role in shaping the future of logging and timber in Oregon. All right, well, the one that I picked for number four is a bit complicated, uh, but it's one I've been reporting about a lot recently, so I'll try to sum it up. So the headline here is, could recent lawsuits and court decisions close trails on public lands and make outdoor recreation more expensive? The answer is pretty clearly yes, or at least maybe, based on the past few months. So let's jump into what we're talking about here. What we're talking about centers on when people are allowed to sue Oregon's public lands managers or places like ski areas and outfitters when they get injured in the outdoors. There's two legal principles at play that I'll explain just a little bit. And the first one is known as recreational immunity. So basically it means that if you get injured while recreating, you can't sue the owner of that land for your injuries, for the costs of paying for your medical bills. 
Like if I hurt my leg while mountain biking at Silver Falls State Park, I can't sue Oregon State Parks Department for my injuries because of a legal shield known as recreational immunity. But this past summer and October, Oregon's Court of Appeals kind of threw the shield into question when it ruled the city of Newport couldn't use recreational immunity as a defense in a lawsuit where a woman slipped on a trail bridge, broke her leg, and then filed a lawsuit against the city. So this ruling by the Court of Appeals has led to a cascading reaction down the coast. One of Oregon's largest insurance companies said cities should consider closing their trails, and places in Oceanside, Garibaldi, and Waldport have taken that advice and have actually shut down some local hiking trails because of concern that people could get injured while hiking them and sue the city and this idea of recreational immunity no longer applies. Now, most places have taken a wait and see approach, most places on the coast, and that's true of the State Parks Department too, because the Oregon State Legislature is expected to take this issue up next session. But it's clear that without some clarification, this could be a big deal for trails on the coast and across Oregon. I wrote a pretty detailed, in-depth story on this specific issue about coastal towns shutting down trails and why they're doing it, uh, and you can find that at statesmanjournal.com. The second thing that I was referencing, I don't want to go too crazy on, um, but the second legal issue has to do with the power of those liability waivers you sign before you go skiing or rafting or just to the rock climbing gym that says you won't sue the owner. Again, recent court decisions have thrown into the quest, into question the power of those liability waivers. And as a result, the insurance costs for recreation businesses have been going up and up and up. So the state legislature has been attempting to fix that as well. But this is kind of the legal side of outdoor recreation that I would say businesses are becoming increasingly concerned about. You know, there is a worry that it'll become too expensive to run a ski area or an outfitter. And the other concern is that public lands could be impacted by this concern over lawsuits. All right, at number three, so this year marked the beginning of something happening that has, that has been in the conversation literally my entire reporting career, which at this point spans about 15 years, and that is the removal of the Klamath River dams. A total of four dams are being removed from the iconic river that begins in Oregon and drops down into California, and one of the dams is already out, the other ones are underway, and the hope here is obviously to restore the salmon runs on one of the most important rivers on the West Coast, to restore the river's health, to open up new sections for fishing and exploring. But it does come at a cost. There has been plenty of opposition to this, and it does mean losing one of the most thrilling whitewater rafting trips in the Pacific Northwest, the Hell's Corner run that was only possible through the peaking flows released by the dams. We had a long podcast with the raft guides who, who run this river, who know it best. And they said, while it is a bummer, they're losing this really fast, thrilling stretch of summer whitewater. New stretches of the river will be opened up. And really, this move is all about improving the health of a very important river system, restoring those salmon runs. Anyway, we did a long podcast on the topic. And if you want to go back and listen to it, you can do that. The dams are scheduled to be removed by the end of 2024. 
Alright, so the second biggest story of the years in Oregon's outdoors again takes us into legal territory. And that was a decision by a jury in Multnomah County that found Pacific Power at fault for four of Oregon's Labor Day fires and ordered the utility to pay millions of dollars to 17 victims of the fires and potentially billions of dollars to other victims. Now, if you're new to the state, the Labor Day fires were a generational calamity, the biggest disaster since I've been a reporter and the biggest wildfire disaster in state history. I mean, nine people died. Thousands of homes were lost, and for a few days in Oregon, it really felt like the end times. If you drive around the Mackenzie Canyon, the Sanium Canyon, up the Clackamas Canyon, those are all, those all those burned trees you see are largely a result of the September of 2020 Labor Day fires. Now, the question has always been, who is to blame? Well, the blame for the fires has mostly centered on Pacific Power which was warned to de-energize its power lines due to an incoming east wind event on Labor Day 2020. Wildfire danger was at historic levels, but the utility did not shut down its power lines. Later that night, power lines sparked four extremely destructive fires, including the 242 fire, South Open Chain fire, Echo Mountain fire, and Sanium Canyon fires. The jury decided that Pacific Power was to blame for those infernos. Now, there's still a long way before the victims of the fires get money from this jury's decision, but the verdict was a big moment in this historic event. All right, well, we started out this list with good news about Coho Salmon. But the biggest story of the year for me, and the one I'm picking as number one, is actually all about the struggles of a different species of salmon, Spring Chinook, and just as important, the overwhelming effort to try and save them in what's known as the Upper Willamette Basin. So this is an area that includes everything above Willamette Falls and means every tributary from the Santium to the Mackenzie to the Malala Rivers. It's a huge river basin, and the effort to restore salmon up there, for good or ill, has been the biggest story of the year for me. Now, this is another story I've written numerous stories on, and it does get fairly complicated. But boiled down to its essence, this story is about how we're going to manage 500 trillion gallons of fresh water that is stored in 13 dams and reservoirs in the Willamette Basin. The dam system in the Willamette was put in place to stop flooding, and it has worked pretty well for that purpose, allowing us to live in this massive watershed without much fear of destructive floods that were more common before the dams were put in. The problem is that the dams cut off the vast, vast majority of salmon habitat. But beginning this year and continuing into the future, the question is centering on how we save these iconic fish while keeping the dams in place. I've reported on everything from these fish taxis in which the salmon are put in trucks to be hauled above the dams and released into the upper river, to an extremely controversial reservoir drawdown. The Army Corps of Engineers was required to drop four reservoirs down to almost rivers, down to historically low levels, so that baby salmon could that had been released in the upper river could get down to the lower river, make it through the dams, and make it back out to the ocean. That is the gold standard. Like, the idea here is that we get spring chinook above the dams into the good spawning habitat, they spawn and their baby fish swim down, they swim through these reservoirs and then make it back to the ocean and complete that system and you build the salmon runs that way. 
The problem is it's become really controversial because in dropping these reservoirs so those baby fish can get out, it flushed mass amounts of sediment into downstream water sources and it wreaked havoc on communities like Sweet Home, like Lebanon, like uh, Lowell. It fouled the drinking water sources of a number of towns and it was a real disaster this fall. So now and into the future, the question is, how much are we willing to pay and to sacrifice to save these incredible fish? There's so many competing interests and it spans so many things from hydropower to recreation to drinking water that for me, this had to be the number one story of the year. And again, I've written a whole bunch of stories about this, about reservoir drawdowns, about the fish taxis. There's just a lot going on there and it's a lot easier if you read the stories we have up on Statesman Journal. Com. Well, once again, just want to thank everybody for listening this year. Um, you know, the more of you listen allows us to keep our wonderful sponsors and hire new journalism interns. It's a program I'm really proud of and it's only possible thanks to you. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest, for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforests.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.